Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. This is episode number 57 of the Gate World Podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds get together and talk about Stargate. Today, we're back on SG-1 history. We're blazing right on through to season nine. But before we get to that, we have some Stargate news, as always, and a few new additions to Gate World. And David just got back from the big Chicago convention for Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis. We'll talk I've about that. I've been everywhere. Stargate news. Here are your headlines from Gate World for August 26, 2009. David in Chicago. David and Chad. I haven't done Chicago in so many years. It was nice to do a lower key convention. It seems no. like it's lower key, like there's not quite as much going on, but actually this is creation's biggest Stargate convention of the year in terms of attendance. Really? Yeah. Bigger than Vancouver? Yeah, that's what Adam Malin told me. You're kidding me. More than 800 people. I don't know what the numbers are. I thought that Vancouver was closer to 500. I could have swore it was capped at 800. There were not 800 people in that room, I thought. There may have been, but I don't think so. There was a nice host of guests at this one this year. Uh, you, you know, you have some of the traditional folks like Michael Shanks. Uh, but, you know, you had Connor Trenier and and uh, they got Rachel Luttrell back. Cool. And I go specifically, I go to Chicago to see my friends. Uh, there are a lot of, of Midwest and a couple of East Coast folks that come out at Chicago. And it's just a lot of fun. A good 10 folks that I look forward to seeing every single year. Nice. The economy didn't keep them away? I was expecting to see a few folks who didn't pay for the event, but were still hanging out anyway, and I didn't. In fact, I think everyone that I was, ex- that I was hoping and expecting to see was there. We did uh, several interviews. Joe Flanagan, Rachel Luttrell, Michael Shanks. And uh, got some uh, some great pictures, some funny pictures, and a little bit of everything. Uh, forum member Elephant Girl has uh, plugged in like 250 photographs. It's a lot. Nice. It's a lot. I will say that. There was a to-be-announced slot uh, at uh, 1.30 in the afternoon on Sunday, and Gary Berman, um, co-founder of Creation, asked if I could fill it. So... <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't tell you about that one, did I? I left that as a surprise. Wow. So I took the stage. and Talk about the, the Z-list. Yeah, talk about the Z-list. Man, oh, man. And, and the, the, the numbers of people in the auditorium were, were, were perfectly appropriate. I, there, were, there, were about, uh, there were about 50 people in there, which was fine. I mean, I don't care. I fielded a variety of questions. You would have loved being there for that. You would have loved yeah. it. This was anything. Ask me anything. Not just about the site, but about uh, when are we going to see Blu-ray? What about Stargate Universe? Um, you know, are you most looking forward to? Talked a lot about the Kino. So this was a good vacation slash work getaway. I was very pleased with it. Also in Stargate news this week, we have the UK premiere date for Stargate Universe. If you're excited about watching the show over in the UK... If you're watching Sky One, it's going to be on October 6th. That is the day that we thought it was. Sky One broadcast Atlantis on Tuesday, and the same episode that Sci-Fi Channel in the U.S. had just broadcast on Friday. 
So they're going to be basically synced. The UK is going to be four days behind the US. A Stargate fan managed to catch on tape some filming of the SGU episode Human at the University of British Columbia a couple of weeks ago. Human is the 14th episode of season one. And uh, the footage includes Robert Carlyle and guest star Michael Shanks. The video is available now on GateWorld. For spy footage, it's it's pretty good. It's the best that I've ever seen for Stargate. Um, this stuff does not surface for the Stargate franchise nearly as often as you think it might, based on the, the amount of, of outside public location shooting that they end up doing. Obviously, a lot of it's off in the woods, and there's not going to be pedestrian traffic. But this was on the university campus, so... Uh, there's a Stargate fan who noticed the signs. You know, they they put up signs saying Stargate Universe is going to be here these days. He was there and shot a little bit of video and took some pictures. And, uh, yeah, the video footage is, is pretty darn cool if you like that stuff. Gateworld Features. Last week on the Friday Five, we looked at the top five minor Goa'ul. This was a fun list to put together. I went back through all ten seasons of SG-1 looked at all those Goa'uld who were not major characters, major villains, major system lords. And there's some cool ones in here. My number five pick is Tarok. Remember this guy from the Serpent's Venom? This was the guy who tortured Teal'c. So I like that guy. And uh, to see my other top five picks, head over to GateWorld right now. And this week on The Five, we'll be looking at the best of Harry Mayborn. Screen Capture Gallery this week. Just a couple of images have been uploaded from Children of the Gods Final Cut. What can I say? I had the H1N1 virus and when I did these, and I kind of went overboard. So, you, you know... Were screen capping with a high fever. I was screen capping with a 105 fever. That explains why there are over 4,000 images from Children of the Gods Final Cut now in the Stargate Gallery. 90 minutes, 4,000 images. I did the math. That's... That's one image every 1.32 seconds. <laughs> That's a little embarrassing. I think we might get in some legal trouble for that, actually. Next week is SG-1 Season 7 Special Features. That's Finally. the Finally! And that's not all we've got going on in the Stargate Gallery at GateWorld. You've also been uploading other goodies. Like we alluded to a minute ago, uh, Creation Chicago 2009. Uh, those pictures should be up by now. And I finally got around to posting some photos from Comic-Con. I think there's about 30 in there. Several of them are these massive panoramic shots that I took of at the uh, SGU uh, launch party uh, and uh, SGU panel. So no pictures of the casts of uh, SGU. So I haven't really made a big deal out of it, though. But there's uh, definitely a picture of me with Kermit the Frog. The main discussion. Well, all year long, we've been going through the history of Stargate. And this week, we are up to Season 9 of Stargate SG-1. This was, suffice it to say, a big year of big, big changes to the show. Change. So big, in fact, that rumor has it the producers called up Sci-Fi Channel and said that they wanted to actually rebrand the show at this point. They wanted to call it Stargate Command. Richard Dean Anderson had officially left the cast. Uh, they brought in a new lead cast member in Ben Browder of Farscape fame. Uh, Amanda was was off uh, having a wonderful, beautiful baby and missed the first five episodes. So we had Claudia Black pinch hitting That's for, right. for five episode guest stint. Uh, actually, she was in six. Mm -hmm. But it was back. she was contracted for five. 
contracted for five, and then she came back at the end of the season. So, lots of changes. The ghoul are gone, mostly-ish. And there's a new bad guy. There's there's new mythology that the show is exploring, so... This is a big year. There's so much to freaking talk about. You know, I, I'll be honest. I did all of the Claudia episodes, uh, but the non-Claudia episodes, I wasn't very... For some reason, I, when I sat down for lunch every day to watch the show... I wasn't extremely e- eager to watch them, so I watched everything in order from Avalon to Beachhead, and then I skipped over. Ah. I dabbled a little bit in Prototype uh, with with Neil Jackson. I dabbled a little bit in Fourth Horseman Part One, but then I went straight to Crusade and Camelot. Nice. So she's she was a great great asset that season. That is my opinion. Well, I'm she was to it. she was a big guest star, and you count them up. She did eight episodes out of twenty this year. Nearly half the season she's in. So if you want to follow along with our conversation, we're going to be talking about all 20 of those episodes. Just go to gateworld.net slash sg1 slash s9 if you happen to be sitting in front of your computer. Otherwise, just close your eyes and imagine. When you go back and look at these now, it's kind of a different show. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a different show. It's, it's, it also has a lot of familiarity. Uh, obviously, Hammond has been gone for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we have a new general in yes. in Hank Landry, Bo Bridges, Bo Bridges. Is a new cast member. When you when you go back and look at these twenty, what stands out to you as your favorite episode of season nine? My single favorite episode of season nine would probably have to be Origin. I liked the establishment of the Ori. I thought they were a cool concept. The setup, fundamentalist religion. It's an analogy for what's going on in the Middle East right now. I mean, you have you have people who cannot be reasoned with. That's yeah. what the Ori followers are. They cannot be reasoned with. So you know that was a that was an interesting um, that was an interesting direction to go. I, I love it when Daniel you know spars with with uh, with a prior or with a docile. You know, so Origin, the powers that be, I really enjoyed. You know, but I'm gonna have I'm gonna I'm really gonna have to go with Origin as my uh, as my favorite episode for the season. The Ori are criticized sometimes because uh, some people think that the writers were were poking at very conservative fundamentalist Christians and they're really not I think that in fact what's getting poked at here is is uh, just what you said those religious people who believe that it is better to kill someone that you can't convert than mm-hmm. to live in peace with them or to go on your way because it will be your reward in heaven or in the afterlife or on a higher plane if you destroy another person's life in the name of your God, you will be blessed. Scary stuff. That was a bold move in bringing the, the Ori out. It was a bold move to move on to another villain. I mean, if you look at the scope of the show, you know, if you look at it like a, like a 12-inch ruler, 10 seasons, a 12-inch ruler, okay, a 10-inch ruler, whatever, then the Ori appear to be tacked on as opposed to having several seasons of growth and, you know, having it be like this, this ongoing book. Because it's two of the ten years, you mean? Right. And in some ways it feels that way to me, but there are some dang good episodes in here, and I don't regret the Ori for a minute. Yeah, if you look at it as, as one big novel with multiple chapters in it, I'm thinking in terms of story with these, these last two seasons being Ori and, and not Gould stories... It could feel like it's tacked on, like it's almost denouement, but it's not. I think what you've got is really the first two chapters of the next novel, of the sequel novel. And that novel ended up not being as long because the show got cut off, mm-hmm. uh, as we'll talk about 
in a couple of weeks when we get to season 10 and the end of the series, you know, they, they were expecting to be able to do more than these two years. Mm-hmm. So it, it, uh, it does get chopped off. And so you can't really compare, in some sense, this, the Ori story to the Gould story because they just didn't get as much time to unravel it. Yeah. But I do, I like the Ori, the Ori concept, the setup. And one of the reasons I like it, it's, it's so quintessentially SG-1, is because it takes that same basic kernel of the Gould as, as being false gods. They, they come in and they use their power, their technological superiority, uh, over over a, a race of transplanted humans, and they pose as gods and they enslave people to their will and and literally, in many cases, to their worship. And the Ori are this to the nth degree. They start out with the premise that okay, we've now overthrown the Gould and freed the galaxy. What if there was a race that was actually so powerful? These guys being ascended beings. That is so powerful that, for all intents and purposes, they basically are gods, or they look like gods. How do you disprove that with a ghoul? You can you can go kill him, and uh, like at the end of Double Jeopardy, say, tell your people if they doubt it to come in and look. We've got your god's dead body here. Yeah, uh, you can't do that with an ascended being, or at well, least we thought not, at first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of what uh, seasons nine and ten had going for it. You know, at this point, we know that ascended beings, or we think that ascended beings, can't be killed. How do we deal with them? So, what was your favorite episode from season nine? My favorite episode is Beachhead. Yeah, number six. We just mentioned this was the end of of the early Vala arc. She gets whisked off. Uh, we think she might be dead, but we all know she's not really dead. Yeah. Uh, and Sam's return. This was when the Ori first attempted to establish a foothold in our galaxy. They've been sending priors through. They're like early messengers. They're they're preachers who are preaching origin. Uh, this religion. They've come through the Stargate, and they're basically talking about this judgment day that's going to come. The fleet is coming. The the armies of the Ori are coming. And if you have not converted by the time they get here, you're gone. So, Beachhead was, was the attempt to build the first Supergate. So again, high-concept Stargate tech stuff. I love the fact that, that we had the Supergate that was being built, and we didn't know what it was. I enjoyed Beachhead an awful lot. You know, not only did it return Sam... It was a lot of fun, you know. There, there was there were a lot of fun beats with Garrick, and you know, it was just, overall, it was a it was a really interesting show. You know, the the idea of uh, of plowing a cargo ship into a Supergate segment slot mm-hmm. and overloading it, I thought that was a really fun idea. Yeah, and the fact that the Ori could build a, a Supergate like this by sending chunks of it through a normal Stargate uh, that had been connected to a black hole creating a black hole, first of all, to power the, the transgalactic connection of the Stargate. Uh, boy, I'm really geeking out now, aren't I? You most certainly are. This was one of the necessary implications of saying the Ori are distant cousins of the Ancients, and the Ancients are the ones who built the Stargates. So now we have to realize the Ori have this knowledge and this technology as well. Scientific inevitability, I suppose. I would probably have to say that my least favorite is Babylon. Not that I dislike Cameron Mitchell stories... But I've never been a huge Jaffa fan. Not only are there, I don't think, any symbiote pouches in Babylon, mm-hmm. um, but it, and Tony Todd's in it, and I love Tony Todd, don't get me wrong. But uh, the whole, you've killed my brother, and now you must die. You know, Mitchell has to be trained to fight in this battle. Cam shot down Volnick and Jolan. 
uh, must train him to be a strong fighter and then also um, kill him. And a prior comes into the village and and Cam convinces Jolan that there's there's a greater issue at stake here, the, the survival of your of your race. And the entire time we know that Volnik is alive. It's a good show, and um, I'm I'm happy to say that. Uh, you know that that this is the my lowest point of the season. So that there, I really consider all all of them to be pretty dang good. But I will have to say that mm-hmm. I've never been a huge fan of Jaffa stories. Sorry, Chris Judge. <laughs> yeah, I like a lot of the conceptual elements in Babylon. I like this idea that there is a hidden, yes, ancient secret society of of Jaffa, yeah. Jaffa who are basically have become legend among other Jaffa, the Sodan, Sodan, however you want to say it. See, I like build up. I would have liked it if there was like a reference to the Sodan at the earlier, yeah. at, earlier in the season, that you know, or, nice. or two, and then we see them. It's like, ooh, gives me tingles. There's kind of like a, a fall off there that I that I don't really appreciate. That that's what I loved about season four. They mentioned the Incarens in the previous episode, so you can mm-hmm. tell that that was going Watergate, on. Watergate, right? Watergate before we met them in Scorched Earth. My least favorite episode in season nine. This is kind of hard for me to pick, actually, because I'm looking at this list, and there's a lot of these episodes that I just have not watched in several years. I haven't seen a lot of these episodes since... Some of them, maybe even since they first aired. Um, Looking at the back half of the season especially, I know I've only seen some of these episodes once or twice. But my least favorite right now, I would say, is Off the Grid. It's because... It's, uh, you know, in in previous seasons when we've done these podcasts and talked about seasons of SG-1, especially in the last last couple of years, uh, seasons 7 and 8, it seems like we've talked about how there were a lot of really cool ideas that just when they reached the execution point didn't mm-hmm. quite do it for us. And Space porn. For me, that's a lot of what season 9 is. Uh, a lot of really cool stuff that, that just didn't quite reach the level that, that I hoped it would. And Off the Grid has a lot of that. Space Corn, the Casa stuff, and SG-1 in this one, they pose as, I don't know, what are they, bounty hunters? Are they traitors? Mercenaries, I guess. Mercenaries. So they're all out of uniform, and they're wearing these cool, worn leather duds, and they get captured and kind of harassed a little bit by some low-grade Lucian Alliance thug. Until a starship can come and save them. Until a starship comes and beams them away. This is also the introduction of the implant. Oh, is it? Is that this yes, one? Yes, it is. That is. Yeah, I know that that's... We've talked about the Scourge, which is the very next episode that that gets used as sort yeah. of the, the save the day at the end. They get beamed well, away. In the very next episode, they have to create a planet that prevents them from locking on to the to the homing beacons. So I thought mm. that introduce it, and immediately you have to create a, a workaround. Mm. So I thought that was really funny. I don't think Off the Grid is bad, though. You know, I'm I'm it's looking not. again at this list, and it's it, it feels like Season 9 is a pretty strong season because the lows are not that low. The lows are, are pretty good middle-of-the-road episodes. You know, even talking about it, I, I would like to watch Off the Grid again, but there are some elements of it. A lot of it has to do with the fact that the main bad guys in this episode are the Lucian Alliance, and let's talk about them a little bit. The mm-hmm. Lucian Alliance was intended to, to fill in the power vacuum that was left by the Goa'uld. They were intended to be a wild card. They're a wild card. They basically get control of a lot of gold assets. So they're flying around in Hataks, motherships, and they've got Alkesh. They're not the main bad guy, obviously. That's the Ori. But they're set up as, as a new wild card, which, again, I thought that was a great idea, and I, I really wanted to, to see it and to feel it. And they used them a lot. 
but they did. They, but it's something that Natan was just like he was more of comic relief than anything else. I I never felt threatened by well, him at all. See, that's the problem exactly. I I didn't think that they were ever used as comic relief, with the exception of Tenet and Joop. But Natan, he was always very serious, very stoic, always ready to to kill you if you if you felt that he was going to benefit from it. But the Lucian Alliance, I never really felt that they were a serious threat. They were just kind of thugs flying around in yeah. big ships. And yeah. So Natan was really only the the main serious recurring Lucian Alliance character. And the Lucian Alliance never really did anything all that big or all that threatening. So mm-hmm. to have them here and off the grid, not only that, but it's not Natan. It's some, it's some random thug of the week. Other dude. Yeah, I know. And SG-1 is cocky the whole time. They're not threatened, and so I'm not threatened, and I don't see the jeopardy in yeah. this. Ball's working on his cloning. He's trying to rebuild his empire. He's no longer on Earth. They've kind of dropped that story. Uh, Ball's no longer on Earth. He's out in the galaxy trying to rebuild his empire, collecting Stargates. And call me a nitpicker, but I love—I just love this. I have to mention it. You know, they get back to the Stargate, you know, and Stargate's been buried there for thousands of years, you can imagine, in, in the grass. Uh, and Ball takes the Stargate and the DHD. And as soon as the DHD disappears, you can see bent blades of grass under where the DHD was sitting. Did you ever notice that? I never noticed that. There are bent blades of grass where it's been sitting for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning and talk about Avalon. This is the big introduction of Cam Mitchell, and the, the opening sequence, the teaser for part one, was, I think, was written to kick off the new show because it's Cam walking into the SGC, touching the Stargate lovingly, and uh, has this little exchange with Walter, and Walter says, welcome to Stargate Command. Like I said in our Season 7 History podcast, the Avalon flashbacks for Cam Mitchell really filled out what I was missing in Lost City, what, mm. I, what I regretted that they, that they didn't spend more uh, visual effects money on and time on. Uh, and uh, what a great way to introduce that character! You know, they 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 took their licks, and and uh, they took their licks with Jonas Quinn. Those writers did, yeah. and they recognized that if um, if they wanted fans to to take an interest in this new character, that they make SG One love him and and appreciate him for what he had done, particularly Jack O'Neill. Yeah, and don't make thus... Jack O'Neill resent the new team member for the oh, first three episodes. Oh yes. And uh, consequently, you have uh, not necessarily a beloved character by the majority of fans, I wouldn't think, with Cam Mitchell, but certainly an appreciated and enjoyable character. I was thrilled when I heard about Ben Browder's casting because Farscape was one of my all-time favorite shows. I watched it from day one on Sci-Fi Channel, and it was with Claudia Black nonetheless. I thought that Avalon was a really nice setup for the character. Um, Part one, we see those flashbacks. It's a nice introduction, and yeah, they, they did seem to learn their lessons from Jonas. Mm-hmm. So as we as we get through seasons nine and ten, I think we can talk a bit more about the success of the character overall. Mm-hmm. We didn't have as much time to get to know him as we did Teal'c and Sam and Daniel and Jack, but uh, there he is, and then he's he's right in the middle of things. Bullets bounce. SG One is exploring Arthurian mythology for the first time. Vala comes to Earth, snaps bracelets on uh, her and Daniel, so they are tied at the hip, which uh, carries through for the next several episodes. It's an ongoing plot thread. Uh, And uh, we explore the Avalon Caves under Glastonbury Tor. Puzzles and knights and and gold and jewels, and Dr. Daniel Jackson finds the one book. Quaid One says, I loved Season 9 because they got back into the mythology aspect, which is what drew me to Stargate in the first place. 
The King Arthur era was such an interesting time, I wish they had another couple seasons to explore it. There were so many story possibilities, maybe even set up Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table to be a type of ancient High Council. Even with the departure of Jack O'Neill and the controversial decisions to bring in Browder and Black, I still enjoyed the penultimate season of SG-1. Shiny Cat says, favorite episode of season nine? I'd have to say the opening threesome, Avalon 1 and 2 in Origin. I was not a huge fan of Cam Mitchell and his military manner all the time. Who could handle that after having Jack for eight years? But Vala and Daniel saved the day. I loved it when she sauntered down the ramp asking, where's my Daniel? I adored Daniel's composing himself when Vala was burned to death. I thought these episodes were a good storyline setup. Was this the classic SG-1 that we all loved? Nope. But I'll watch Daniel and Vala any day as readily as I will watch Daniel and Jack. Hello, Darren and David. This is Scott from Birmingham, Alabama. I have to say, without a doubt, my favorite episode of Stargate SG-1 Season 9 has to be the season premiere, Avalon Part 1. The episode introduced Cameron Mitchell to the Stargate universe, who I have to admit I absolutely loved having Cam on the show. I thought it was great after three seasons of really tired Richard Dean Anderson and this is a blasphemer, but I loved having a new, infused, younger, more active member of the SG team. Uh, you had the extended dogfight sequence in Antarctica. You had the whole getting the band back together motif that would last for the next like five, six episodes. And you had that great sword fight between Cam Mitchell and the Black Knight in the Glastonbury Cave at the end of the episode. The episode also introduced the whole Arthurian myth into the Stargate universe, and it was a great kickoff to the season. I had also just moved into an apartment with two of my college buddies, and season nine was that season where we had Sci-Fi Night, where Sci-Fi Channel on Friday nights would show SG-1, Atlantis, and Battlestar Galactica in a row on Friday nights, and that just kind of became sort of our roommate guy bonding time. These episodes made a lot of Daniel Valla fans. Yes. And obviously, Valla was introduced back in Season 8's Prometheus Unbound, and they had they had the chemistry. I mean, this was the Daniel Valla episode, but, you know, I, I was concerned that, uh, as much as I love Claudia Black, based on the character uh, as she had been portrayed in Prometheus Unbound, that how was this character going to fit into SG-1 for a five-episode arc? I was I was very, very pleased with the way they did it. They they kept her her uh, silliness, her, her humor, her edge, and yet they also did exactly what they needed to do, which is make her more serious and more vulnerable, uh, which they did by burning her alive, basically. That scene is tough to watch. Claudia Black is funny. I mean, there are great beats that were captured on film. The treasure must be in this pot. When that when that gold coin is revealed and she kind of goes, huh? There it is. <laughs> I was sitting there watching that laughing so hard. But then you're right. At the very end of that episode, you know, we, we that character runs the gamut. She has a complete change. Uh, not exactly a change of heart, but, you know, we see her vulnerability. We fear the worst. I mean, and that that burning scene is horrific. Yeah. It's intense. I remember seeing that on TV. I'm like, holy cow. I don't know if this would be on network television. I think that may be the darkest that SG-1 ever got. In terms of a single scene? In terms of a single scene. Possible. Single Abyss shot. got pretty dang close. Abyss did, yeah. And, and Jack asking Daniel to basically end his life. But uh, uh -huh. this was this was graphic dark. Yeah. It's kind of interesting when I, when I think about this opening three-parter, Avalon Part 1 is actually the one that stands alone. This is Cam's introduction, and yeah, it ends on the, on the cliffhanger in the caves. 
but it's Avalon Part 2 and Origin that are, are actually more of a two-parter together. Mm-hmm. This is all the stuff with Daniel and Vala uh, using the long-range communications device to occupy the bodies of these two villagers in the mm-hmm. Ori home galaxy. And they meet the Doci and get all the exposition about the, the Ori and Origin and, hey, we're coming to get you. The bracelets were taken off at the end of Origin, but the effects are persistent. And they fear that it may have something to do with the ancient communications terminal. So the technologies have mixed together and they've created a, 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 as they fear, uh, a permanent connection, a permanent bond between Daniel and Vala. She is stuck with him and he is stuck with her. This is the scavenger hunt episode. This was a fun idea. Now, this is one of the things that, that Vala brought to the show that I really liked was the sense of there's a whole lot more going on out in a galaxy that is filled with stargates than just, you know, people mining Naquita for the Gould and farming and holding Renaissance festivals. You know, <laughs> there's actually other people who know how to use the Stargate and go from planet to planet trading, and yep. there are other people who are spacefaring. There are bounty hunters. All the stuff is out there. So Vala introduces us to this seedy underbelly of, of our own galaxy. And this is also her a heavy Vala backstory episode. We meet a lot of her old compadres... And, and like in the powers that be, you know, we, we see that she's capable of, of planet-wide or at least village-wide uh, uh, mass uh, force labor. Uh, but, you know, she, she has Yeah, there's an ethical dilemma for you. Vala enslaved a race for a little while. The ties that bind was so much fun. And Wallace Shawn. Buzz, the monkeys aren't working! I mean, it's it's Rex, and it's a host of other Disney characters. Wally Shawn is Shawn. so great. He is I mean, fantastic. It's... The Powers That Be, uh, episode written by Martin Garrow. Martin has confessed to us that Rob Cooper picked up a lot of it because Martin was busy working on, I think it was Duet at this point. Um, yeah, but this was his first official SG-1 script, wasn't it? Official SG-1 main, script. Main uh, Atlantis writer. Vala, goes, Vala is put on trial for uh, crimes on this planet. At the same time, a prior conveniently visits and dispenses... A huge, massive fart that infects everyone. At least that's how I think of what it is. Prior you know? fart would make me a prior sick. fart. That's right. I, I I always think that before he left the planet, <laughs> before the prior plague started, he He's let out a one. nice, a nice loud prior fart. But there's and, there's no actual audio on it, so it's more nope. like silent but deadly. I wish that they had gone with that, sir, general, general, so and so from SG Nine came back and he's been infected with a prior fart, and it's. It's persistent and spreading. <laughs> oh, that's just begging for a Peter DeLuise audio commentary. I like this episode a lot. This was one of the examples I always think of when I think of, of SG-1 ending dark, ending on a, on a we-didn't-win note. There's a lot of that this season. And that's basically we've set up the Ori, we've set up who they are, what these priors are doing on all these planets. We come to one, go head-to-head against a prior, and lose, and lose badly. He didn't kill the entire village. I think that would have been really interesting. That, that would have been darker. This was better because for SG-1 defending against the the concept of origin yeah. and this, this enslaving, basically the, the planet said, we give in. Mm-hmm. So, Don't listen to them. I mean, it's, it's one thing if you go go around hopping from planet to planet and everybody's willing to stand up for what they believe in and die. That's one thing, but here you have planets that are giving in. 
And that's, I think, even worse in terms of, of SG-1 and what they're all about in slaying false gods. These people are poverty-stricken. They have nothing. The prior is offering them everything that they need to survive. And all they've had is, you know, one false god after another. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, good question. Can you blame them? So then we move on to Beachhead and uh, Vala is presumed dead, but she might have been transported away. Who knows? And we'll find out before the season is over if she's alive or not. Guess what? Yes, she is. She is alive. That was. Pr- I-, I liked the. I liked the setup. You know, a planet uh, formerly controlled by Cronus. You know, the prior goes through, and uh, decides to make a nice big soap bubble on the surface, uh, which expands and expands as. Uh, some the- sweet visuals in this. This is a neat episode. The Supergate stuff is fantastic. This episode includes. This prior is freaky. Oh, yeah. He freaks yeah. the crap out of me, this this bald prior with the glassy eyes. I guess they all had glassy eyes. Pretty much. But, yeah, but, and then SG-1 beaming down into the bubble in their EVA suits with a yeah. Mark... Was it a Mark 9 or a Mark, Mark 9 8? Gatebuster. Gatebuster to destroy the Stargate. This episode includes probably, uh, at least easily in the top five, one of my favorite visual effects shots in the entire show, the molten Stargate yeah. uh, turned over on the planet surface. I love that shot. That is a beautiful image. And you mentioned Garrick a few minutes ago when we were talking about this. He's a major recurring character for the first half of this season. Hallowed are the Ori. This was this was a really interesting little character arc for this guy. Uh Lou Gossett Lou Gossett Jr. Jr. Uh, knocked it out of the park as Garrick, the one of the up and coming leaders of the Free Jaffa nation that was just established at the end of season eight. I was so disappointed when he spontaneously combusted. I was too, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, the way the story goes is the producers had an embarrassment of riches. They got Bo Bridges and Lou Gossett Jr. and had to decide what roles to cast them in. Mm-hmm. So they could have cast Lou Gossett Jr. as the new general, but uh, they went with Bo, and Lou got this this 11-episode story arc. Yeah. Is he in all 11? No, he's not in all 11. Okay. Okay. But he's in but, a bunch. He's a really interesting character. He um, basically gets himself in power among the Jaffa. Yeah. And then, uh, in the mid-season two-parter, which we're, we're almost to, decides he goes that, that the Jaffa need to go Ori. That's, I mean, he's, he's, not, he's not pressured by a prior to do this. He's not threatened with death mm-hmm. or the plague. He does his research. He's, he's actually, I mean, he's given the Book of Origin to read, and he's, he's convinced that this is the way the Jaffa need to go, which is a new kind of scary. One of the things that, if, if the show is going to go on, you know, never, everything is not going to be happy and rosy in Jaffa land. You're going to have the establishment of the nation, and it's, it's absolutely the natural way to go. The first leader is going to be someone that's dicey that's going to cause some problems mm-hmm. uh, for the next year or so until Braytac is established. You know, well, yeah, and you trade one slave master for another. Exactly. That's, that's what I love is, is that there is actually a, a, a influential Jaffa who doesn't get that. He and doesn't it, get that he's replacing the Gwauld with the Ori. They didn't have to tell uh, that Jaffa arc this season. Uh, and I said earlier that you know Jaffa stories are not my favorite. Some of them certainly are, uh, but and I'm really glad in season nine that they showed us the formation of the nation and the High Council, and later on in the season the decision to to uh, go democratic. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that they brought back uh, past Jaffa characters that we had seen, like mm-hmm. uh, Kalel. 
from the Hakteel, the female Jaffa, ended up on the High Council. She was a background player in Season 7. Yes. And now she's a, a pretty serious recurring character in Season 9. You can't get Jolene Blaylock up there to say two lines of dialogue. You can't even get Tony Amendola up there to say two lines of dialogue. There's a mention of Ryak, Braytek and Ryak helping to, to kind, of, kind of cool things down on Dakara. But meanwhile, while the Jafar are getting their act together, there's also more interesting things going on with the Gould. Which yes. is, you could have just played this where the Gould have been cast down, they're, they're defeated, we don't need to hear anything else about them. Actually, there's a lot of interesting story possibilities for former gods and, and super powerful aliens who have been cast down. And the first one comes up in Ex Deus Machina with Ball. Ball has found himself a new homeworld. And surprise! In the millions of planets in this galaxy, he picks little old us. He loves us. He yes. loves Earth. He does. This is so, such a ball thing to do. He's got balls to come here, I tell you. And he's got several balls. So, uh, he's cloning himself. <laughs> that's right. I that's think that's right. what you mean. I, it's exactly what I mean. Ball has many balls. The cloning thing actually is not revealed until the very, very end exactly. of this episode, which is Man, a, an fun. awesome little tag. He's not just hiding out on Earth. He's out and about. He's on television as a, as a, a powerful uh, leader. The work that the Gould have been doing with the Trust in Season 8... Ball basically comes, with all those businessmen, Mm -hmm. Ball basically comes in and makes those businesses his own. Yeah. Uh, That was a really, really neat tie. That pays off really nicely, I think, with episodes like Full Alert. And, you know, a great episode of Garrick, you know, Teal'c has some great lines in this show. You know, the the Tari have helped you to win your freedom, and now you're encroaching on their back door and doing things in the dead of night, sticking behind the moon. Mm -hmm. You know, respect them enough to be honest with them and tell them the truth about what you're doing. He captures a ball uh, and thinks that he's gotten rid of them. And nope, there are more. There are several balls mm-hmm. all bouncing around. So we get to see ball killed the first of many times. <laughs> yeah, that becomes a running theme. A subplot in which season I think nine weakens the character, but killing um, ball. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But uh, it it led to some some cool stuff. One of the things that I remember about X Deus Machina is the shot of the cargo ship landing on top of a skyscraper yes. on earth yes. and and then the jaffa go in and there's a staff blast fight so they're yeah. shooting up this this uh, yeah. office complex with cubicles that that juxtaposition of earth and that is a unique sequence is really interesting to me we've we had never seen anything like it before yeah so for an earth-based episode this is one that i like prototype the son of Anubis, Kalik, played by the fantastic Neil Jackson. The Stargate call forwarding, you know, where they go through and the Stargate forwards you to another gate. That was a nice idea. Instantaneously. And they spent like five or six minutes explaining that. Didn't they use the call forwarding again in the quest part two? I don't remember. Is that that same kind of idea? I don't remember. It's possible. I mean, this we'll is Stargate for crying out loud. We've so. got a couple weeks. We've got it. We've got it. And a lot of visual effects in this one. You know, uh, they, they, they work on the anti-prior device. They get a lot of data from him. And this is the first introduction of the Ascendometer. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the idea that Ascension can be calculated, physically, yeah. physically calculated, which I never cared for. Nope. It really took away the spiritual and... Uh, Metaphysical. The, the, that component was lost. Yeah. 
I agree. This. So I kind of pretend that this didn't happen. Uh, and then we he dies in the end. Which I think it would have made a really interesting episode if he got away. So Anubis is out there again. but Not really uh, Anubis, but Anubis basically his creation. Yeah. With all of his, all of his genetic memory. It's got a lot of interesting parts. I'm not really wild about Prototype. I like a lot of, of what's in it, like the call forwarding on the Stargate. Uh, Neil Jackson is, is a fantastic guest star. And that's part of the reason why I wish they would have kept him alive. Yeah. The just shooting him up on the gate ramp, I thought, was a loss to what what could have been a really interesting recurring character. And you know, we always gripe and moan about how they never they never kill characters; they just always cut just before they kill them. Here's one where they did. Yeah, they gave us resolution for sure. Resolution for that character, definitely. The fourth horseman, Cameron Bright, the cigarette smoking man, and mm-hmm. of course, Garak. This is our mid-season two-parter. This was where we have to make some major forwarding on the, the Ori storyline and the plot of Season 9. This is the, the revelation of the whole reason for Origin. Right. This explains why it exists. Yeah, why do ascended beings care if, what, if they are worshipped by yeah. new mortals? What do you think about that explanation, that there is a physical transfer of energy from worship that somehow manages to channel its way directly to them across the universe? It was never entirely explained to my satisfaction, let's say that. There was always kind of a bigger suspension of disbelief element than than elsewhere in Stargate. And I can get that, sure, maybe they're ascended beings, they live on a higher plane, they're pure energy. So yeah, maybe there is some sort of transfer of energy from from worship, from what comes from adoration, uh, even if it's forced adoration. I can I can buy that. But yeah, you start adding elements like they're located in a different galaxy. Mm-hmm. So when they convert planets here, does the energy of those worshippers go to them wherever they are, or are yeah. they just preparing the way to come here? Um, I don't know. I I think that you have to have something like this in order to really make the story work it's um, very if it very was, gray when you get down to it yeah but if it was just the or i think they're super awesome and they want to be worshipped period and they're they're going to kill you if you don't worship them i don't know that, that would have mm-hmm. quite been enough for me as a motivation yeah for a villain the prior plague uh, reaches earth um sg teams off world are apparently found out uh, one of them is blessed and brought back, mm-hmm. and that stinky fart is hanging around. And uh, pretty quickly, we have uh, a, gl- uh, a worldwide pandemic. How many thousands were killed in this? It's another example of, of the show clearly not being set in our, in our world. It's a good uh, couple of episodes. Orlin returns. Many, and... many die, and I don't think we ever hear about it again. Mm-mm. No, Orlin returns, and, we've, uh, and he's here to help us solve the plague. And right. he's getting sleepy, and he's breaking vials of blood, and uh, repeating himself. Yes. Yeah. In the meantime, in Joffland, Garrick has converted to Origin, uh, and later converts to a prior. So, <laughs> uh, this was pretty intense. That was cool. I like that. I like Garrick getting priorized, and that Teal'c is able to reach him. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if that was actually going to work. You know, showing him his father's gravestone, and then him going back to Earth. Healing everybody and and then blowing up because he, he went against the way of the Ori. 
I like that a lot, and I'm glad that it worked um, because it, it made the priors themselves more interesting. They, mm-hmm. it, it showed you that there was still a bit of a free will element going on with mm-hmm. what the priors were doing. Uh, that they were not when you become a prior, you don't just get brainwashed and and become a, a total Ori robot. The Fourth Horseman as a as a mid season two parter. You know what? To be honest, I found this one really really disappointing in a lot of ways. I'm not wild about this two parter uh, as a mid season two-parter, which are usually really big. This this may be my least favorite mid-season two-parter of the show. Um, part of that is that there were extenuating circumstances that were beyond the control of the producers. Like, I love Orland's character, and I think pretty yeah. much everybody loved him from his appearance in season Flannery Ascension. And they couldn't get Sean Patrick Flannery to come back. He was he was busy. He's a He's a great actor, and he was doing other things. And they couldn't make the schedule work, so they rewrote the story to have a child version of Orlin. Now, that introduces some other interesting things when you consider the fact that Orlin is still in love with Samantha Carter, but now he's 12. Yeah! I was tremendously disappointed by that, by by uh, that character and where he went. I thought that his, his uh, little bit of salvation in Ascension, getting to, to uh, go back and join the Ancients, was... Canceled out was really nice and this cancels it out and I know you know it's meant to be heartbreaking but it was heartbreaking and just disappointing I, I yeah. wasn't sad the prior plague on earth okay cool we saw the with the plague before it's really interesting that it reached earth Landry gets sick it was like all the scenes were contained in the base and it was just it was I just know. Dr. Lamb uh, you know patting the sweat off of General Landry and maybe a stray TV report, but we didn't see it, and there yeah. were no ramifications later in the series. Well, that's a budget issue. I mean, you know, it's it's not exactly it's not exactly like we're watching Stephen King's The Stand. Uh, and I was disappointed about that. You know, this is we're being told that this is happening all around the world, and and we've got one isolation room with several guys in it who are sick. Uh, and for a bud- for a television series, you know, you've got to do with the budget what you can. I think they did the best they that they could with it. Collateral damage. I enjoy collateral damage an awful lot. This, this is a, a nugget, this is a nice little one. Nugget of Colonel Mitchell's backstory. I think there was a lot of neat camera work in this one, and a lot of neat editing uh, with the glare and memory device. Mm-hmm. And to wrap it all up, a murder investigation. This was cool. This was this was more classic SG one. I think this was the yeah. team going off and and getting into trouble. It was a yeah. team adventure on a new planet that, that we had never been to before. Yep. And it was it was a really nice introduction for Mitchell. And this was the episode that I wish we had gotten sooner. And when I was thinking about collateral damage earlier today, I was thinking that this was the first Mitchell episode. Actually, the first Mitchell episode was Babylon, which was yes. number eight. Uh, I didn't learn very much about Mitchell in Babylon. It felt like it was, I don't know, maybe it was plot-driven instead of... of really getting into the character's head uh, but um, Collateral Damage I think is the first real Mitchell episode and, and I wish it had come sooner Hey this is Molly from Pennsylvania calling in about season 9 My favorite episode would have to be Ripple Effect closely followed by Arthur's Mantle I love that we got to see Janet and Martouf again and the moments they had with Sam, Daniel, and Teal. I thought it was interesting in the end how different the other SG-1 was and the reveal that they caused the problem for their own benefit I also have to say that I enjoyed it because the Ori are only mentioned in this episode. To be honest, I didn't like them or their introduction in Season 9. It was interesting to learn who they were, but the how or the Ori stuff got a bit old to me. Incidentally, however, the next, and sadly the last season, turned out to be one of my favorites, 
and I ended up liking storylines with the Ori. Atri says, the whole Ori story did never truly interest me like the ghoul did. I'm pretty indifferent to these episodes. The only one I somewhat liked was Ripple Effect. It was nice to see Janet and Martouf again, not to mention the alternate versions of our heroes. For a moment, when Teal'c and Daniel met Janet, I was transported back to the earlier seasons and felt the bonds between them. It was one of the few moments when I felt that SG-1, or at least a part of it, was still a team. How about Ripple Effect? Ripple Effect. Joseph Malazzi was so excited about this one, and I enjoyed it a lot. It was pumped and promoted just a little too much for me. Mm. The, the show was, was, was 90% of what I was expecting. Had I not heard anything about it, I would have fallen in love with it. It really shows that you know, how much you know beforehand really, really has an effect on your enjoyment of yeah. an episode. Uh, and, and it's lasting impression in your mind. Yeah, I think that's true. J.R. Bourne comes back as Martouf. Terrell Rothery comes back as Janet Frazier. You know, there are, I think this episode really shows that there are other realities out there in the ether that are just as significant as ours is. It's got a, a great idea to it. They've got an evil SG-1. They're taking Prometheus. They're, they, the prior plague on their planet has, I don't remember if it's decimated their population, but our characters, our SG-1 characters, have went through something in another reality so horrific that they are willing to do almost anything including mm-hmm. capturing their duplicates and posing as their duplicates because they're the one that causes this to try to was it steal a zpm yeah i think they were trying to steal a zpm were they going to go to atlantis and steal i think they were trying to go to atlantis atlantis is zpm i'm looking at the episode guide and i gave this one three out of four stars which is a rather high rating for gate world's episode guide i like this one in a lot of ways but I also feel like Ripple Effect should have been a four-star episode. Uh, mm. and, and so the, the faults that I find with the episode really stand out in sharp relief to me. Uh, really cool, high-concept gate problem. And you yes. and I have talked about this in the past, that, that after the early seasons, they stopped doing gate problem episodes where something yes. goes wrong with the Stargate. Uh, like in a matter of time, we connect to a, a, a Stargate that's close to a black hole, and that causes the wormhole to go hinky. Time distortion. Ripple effect did it, and it did it it, it fantastically. There's all these, all these different universes were were being drawn together, were being siphoned through our Stargate. So we were getting all these different versions of SG One. Mm-hmm. Really cool. They take the time to explain the beat about the um, entropic cascade. Entropic failure. cascade failure. You know the, that gets explained away. He takes his, he takes a moment to explain it, whether you whether you accept it or not. It's there. Well, so. yeah, props to Joe for, for putting that in because he knows that we would go crazy if yep. nobody mentioned Entropic Cascade failure. Yep. You can't have more than two of this, more than one of the same person in the universe without yep. wires getting crossed. So, And I also I really like the fact that one of the SG-1s turns out to be bad, turns out to be responsible for mm-hmm. this. I wish that they would have had the time or taken the time to slow down a bit and, and ask some of the more serious questions like... You know, what does it take for SG-1 to reach this point where they're willing to do this? What would it take for our team, our guys that we love, to reach this sort of point where they're willing to, to sacrifice another universe, potentially, or at least cripple another universe? This would have been a really fun late-season two-parter. I just have some disappointments that really color this one a bit for me, and, and it's things like, we get to see Martouf again. Martouf was probably my favorite recurring character in season three. And we get to see Janet again, and we all just wept over her death in season seven. And we love JR and we love Terrell, the actors who portray them. They get stuck 
in the SGC and they get stuck in a little room and we have yeah, some conversations the with them but they're not in this episode they're, they're faces that we can say hi to they're not a yeah. part of the story and, and I'm really disappointed that they just got stuck in a room in Stronghold uh, Ball is interested in influencing the Jaffa government he's just up to his old tricks man mm-hmm. oh man if he can't be in power yeah. in his own system lord territory and he can't be in power on Earth, he's going to find somebody to control. Tilk gets captured by Ball, and Cam is facing a dilemma of his own on Earth. His friend is going to die and uh, uh, was up for the uh, F-302 program, and Cam got to go on these amazing adventures, and, and uh, his friend could have taken, could have actually been in his place. So you, the Galarian memory technology comes back but just before his death, he's allowed to see some of Cam's amazing adventures. Cam risks everything to go get Teal'c and goes balls to the walls to, to break into that mothership and rescue him. Mm-hmm. Foolishly, yeah, running through enemy fire. He's letting emotions get the best of him, but uh, he doesn't get taken out. He manages uh, to bring him home. I like that better. I, for his character development and, and learning who Cam is inside, I like that going just losing it at the end and being mm-hmm. being an army of one to try and rescue Teal'c. I like that a whole lot better than everything that came before it with his friend. Ethan, the death of Prometheus, the death of the office building in space. Let's let uh, Rachel 500 talk about it. She says my favorite episode is Ethan. The quality of the writing is superb as the team revisit Tagalus. Daniel's fight to win a diplomatic solution and the team's attempt to take out the Ori's satellite is just fantastic. At the heart of the story is the destruction of Prometheus, the shock of how quickly it is hit, the frantic abandonment of the ship, the sacrifice of Pendergast. Teal'c and Sam's reunion on the planet is lovely, beautifully underplayed by both Amanda and Chris, while the eventual cat-and-mouse game-playing to force an agreement is dramatic and tense. The end is realistic if downbeat, Ethan reminds us that the Ori are a huge threat, not just because of their technological superiority, but also because of their influence on vulnerable planets, and the cost to us is huge. That pretty much says it all right there. One of the things that I like about it is that it shows how the Ori and the Priors were taking different tactics with different planets. So you've got the Prior Plague over here, you've got, uh, I don't know, we're threatening them a different way over here, Uh and then... You're giving them a superpowered weapon in Ethan, and I, I love the the uh, development that that did for the Ori and their and the Priors. The Scourge R seven five appears on a planet where there has been a Prior, and the Priors actually release these little these little flesh eating bugs. Uh, once they have the taste of meat, they begin to multiply, so they have to be kind of like activated. Man, what a cool show! Great visual effects, a real romp in the woods. Richard Wolsey is back in this one. They introduce Shen Shao Yi, one of my favorites, uh, and you know this is uh, this is a good show. Scourge is is towards the bottom of my list for the season, but again, in season nine, my lesser favorite episodes are are still middle of the road. Maybe this episode didn't do it for me because it did everything right, which is it's a creepy bug episode, and I hate creepy bugs. <laughs> so maybe by creeping me out. It uh, did exactly what did it the said job. Out to do. Yeah. Arthur's mantle is really my second lowest for the season. Daniel and and Carter and Mitchell go out of phase. I think that's what it is. And Teal's the only one left. And then you've got Zombie Volnick uh, running around, and uh, Mitchell and Teal are able to to wax him. Doctor Lee 
gets obnoxious, I think, in in later yeah. episodes of SG One. But this episode, I like Doctor Lee in. He's played for laughs. He's he's a bit silly. He's talking about how he thinks that they were miniaturized, and he's cordoned off this little area of his lab <laughs> where he thinks they've done Honey I Shrunk SG One. Yeah, I think it's funny. Uh, I like Doctor Lee in this one, and I like I like the technology. I like how we're trying to figure out what the heck Merlin was doing, and um, how that plays into Arthurian mythology. Mm-hmm and the Ori story. Crusade is an interesting episode, I think in large part, because this episode is not about SG-1. This is major uh, advancing of the Ori story. This is catching us up where they are. They're about to invade. They have built their ships. Uh, But this episode is not about SG-1. They're sitting and listening to Vala tell her story. Very, very, very preggers Claudia Black with her first child. Rob Cooper's first stint at directing. It was. It's good. I have always been a huge fan of Michael Ironside, and probably my biggest disappointment yeah. of this episode is that he's killed. Michael Ironside's Canadian. I've been waiting for them to use him for years now, and then they use him as he's killed. No. Yeah, but it was a good character. He's sort of the he's sort of the bad guy, the antagonist. And, and then, then you the find good- out at the end that he's He's the leader of this underground Ori resistance movement. I watched this episode earlier tonight. Toman, uh, this is the first time I've, re- I've rewatched Crusades since, since the whole Toman arc. Uh, Tim Guinea mopped up the floor. He did a really good job, played it marvelously. Mm-hmm. You know, a lame man who the prior blesses and allows him to walk. And he's conscripted into, into the, the legions of the Ori guard. Toman was one of my ca- favorite characters from the, from the Ori arc. Yeah, mine too. And Tim Guinea is, is one of the reasons I like Crusade so much. Yep. It's uh, it's a different episode, and and that actor, not just the character, but but the actor and the emotion, the the vulnerability and sensitivity that he brought to that portrayal, especially to his relationship with Vala, uh, mm-hmm. really makes this episode uh, a special one. I think he loves um, her. She's finally found someone that she cares about. The other thing that I love about Crusade is by taking us away from everything that's going on with the Milky Way galaxy and over to the Ori galaxy, uh, it shows us that there is something else going on. Pretty much all we've seen so far is priors and they're meddling. This one we see the people who worship the Ori every day and who are being conscripted to build ships and take up arms and go and fight and die and kill in the name of Origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that is interesting. It makes the Ori suddenly much much more interesting, and the fact that that we get this sensitive face of Toman put on that. They're no longer Al Qaeda sitting in a hole. You know, you've got a sympathetic character on that side that you really really wish you could root for almost. So then it all leads up to the big season finale. Camelot. Camelot. Hi, Darren and David. My name is Xenomorph. My favorite episode of Stargate SG-1 Season 9 would have to be the season finale, Camelot. The episode featured a great guest star, John Noble, and it featured some great comedy scenes where Daniel and Cam get beamed out not once, but twice, after dropping the line, There is no magic involved. We get to see two Daedalus-class ships fighting side-by-side for the first time, as well as several Hatoks and one Asgard O'Neill ship. It also featured the premiere of my favorite battleship, the Ori Flying Toilet Seat. It was definitely the biggest one-sided space battle where almost all our ships are destroyed, and the Ori don't even have a scratch. Space battle was definitely number one in my book for a long time, until it was replaced by Beyond My Sins Remembered. 
darn good episode. It's it's way it's two episodes, like Brad was saying. You have you have the the Camelot elements uh, on the planet. They're trying to access uh, Merlin's library. They're trying to discover the Sand Growl. And uh, all we really discover is that it's not here. And then we have to rush into space and confront the new Ori beachhead. And, man, we get pasted. We lose a Daedalus-class ship in this episode. We don't know which one it is. That was one of the, one of the, one of the beats. Great visual effects sequence. Everyone, for season 10, everyone wanted to use uh, Stargate's in-house visual effects sequence because they did such a bang-up job with this. The, the Supergate Kawoosh is astounding. And, oh, I loved uh, it. And then after the after the Kawoosh, the way that there's this massive ripple across the face of the event horizon. I love that shot. It absolutely does have scale. The, this sequence is a sequence that has been a long time coming. They spent some money on it. In season one of Atlantis with the the, the Baghdad uh, over Atlantis, the, the Wraith Dart bombardment. The uh, siege. The very next year for Camelot in season 10, the very next uh, production season, they did it with SG-1. And it is, it is fantastic. And then the beat at the end with Vala and the baby coming. I got mm-hmm. chills. That was, that was That's a nice little perfect. End. It was a nice little period. The fight is, is really incredible, and I love the, the Super Friends element. We've got our Free Jaffa allies. Tilk has gone off and managed to convince the Lucian Alliance to commit ships to it, or at least a ship. There's an Asgard ship flying around. Spino Breaker says, I'd say the best episode was Camelot. Why? or I warships and the proof that even though we are good compared to the ghoul we are still the kids on the block in intergalactic mm-hmm. terms we really yeah. did get our butts handed to us we threw everything that we had at this but there's I think four, four ships, ships. Through. and we didn't make a dent not even a scratch this entire season is all about you know fall back fall back fall back until we can come up with the magic weapon that'll save us all this is a great season for that Mm-hmm. There's no resolution in terms of, of of that. We haven't pulled the genie out of the out of the bottle. So that's 20 episodes of season nine. What did you think of this major change to the show? Yeah, it was um, a really good year. Being a person of faith, and I've said this before, you know, I was I was compelled uh, by the Ori. I felt that they were very very interesting to watch, even though we only saw them once. Um, and they sounded like Borg. I loved this year. I loved Cameron Mitchell. I loved Vala. Enjoyed Hank Landry a lot. They could have gone a lot of ways with a new SG-1. And this is one that I probably would have picked uh, had I had several versions of a season 9 to watch. I'm going to give this season a 7.5 out of 10. I find that season 9 is rather difficult to judge, actually, because it is almost a different show. It's almost a different show, but it's not. It's still mm-hmm. SG-1. It's not like you can take three main cast members and use the same setting and basically make a new show. Uh, I'm glad that they didn't make it into Stargate Command because we've got three main cast members that are the same. The setting is the same. Basically, the concept is the same. I think that Season 9 makes a really strong first season of a show. There is so much fundamental going on, introducing new main characters, introducing new bad guys, and doing that slow reveal of the threat... That, that these bad guys are, uh, it, it would have made a really strong first season to another show. I agree with you, as a person of faith, the Ori themes really resonated well with me. Again, I love the fact that they're sort of the ghoul to the nth degree, uh, and they raise some interesting questions there. But season nine's a bit of a middle-of-the-road 
season for me. Uh, again, the lows are not that low, uh, but I also think that there are not a lot of outstanding episodes in season nine. Uh, I wouldn't say that there are any four-star episodes in season nine. There are a couple that come really close, but uh, overall I'll give it a seven out of ten. Thanks to everybody for writing in and calling in. We got lots of voicemail this week, and there's a couple about other topics. Unrelated to the main discussion. Hey there, this is Nathaniel, and I just wanted to say thank you for bringing up Defying Gravity. I think, unfortunately, them labeling it as Grace Anatomy in Space had the unintended result of eliminating the sci-fi fans because of the Grace Anatomy half of that analogy, and the Grace Anatomy fans because of the sci-fi half of the analogy when in fact it's a show that both of them can enjoy. I've heard that it's been getting bad ratings, but it really is great. I love Stargate for taking place in the present, but I think the world also needs a realistic, near-future, sci-fi, Earth-based astronaut show. This is Joel calling from Houston, Texas. The thing I wanted to talk about was the best way for David to proceed through watching Hero Seasons 2, which was mentioned last week in the podcast. The best way to watch it is to not watch it. Season 2 is bad, but Season 3 is even worse. I had to stop watching Season 3 because I fear of hemorrhaging in my brain because it was so painfully bad. So my advice would be sell the DVDs, get some money towards the Lost Blu-rays, and call it quits. Thanks, guys, for those calls. Go watch Defying Gravity. Hey, if you haven't seen it yet, it's on ABC Sunday nights at 10 o'clock. This is a good show. I just watched episode five last night. What's coming up? What's coming up? September 2nd. What do fans owe the show? The time has come to answer the burning question. Darren. In what ways are fans responsible, responsible for supporting their favorite series? If you consider your your favorite show to be Lost, mm-hmm. if you consider Stargate to be in your top five, does that mm-hmm. does that change your level of responsibility? Do you owe the show DVD sales to let the broadcasters, the distributors of the DVDs, the the producers of the show, the crew, the cast, to let them know that you are out there? So we've talked about this topic briefly in terms of uh, do you need to buy the DVDs whether you like the episode or not? Um, do you need to watch the show live instead of DVR delayed? Those two questions, I think, are just the tip of the iceberg, and I'm interested to see where this goes. We always talk about what we think the show, the producers and the writers, owe to fans for their allegiance. So this is flipping that around. What do you, mm-hmm. as a fan of Stargate, owe the producers? And then on September 9th, we'll be right back here in Stargate history to finish off SG-1's television run with season 10, and then we still have Arc of Truth to talk about. And then on September 16th, Stargate Fan Fiction. We really need to bring an expert in Stargate Fan Fiction in on this one. I really think we need someone who knows what they're talking about in this regard. We do. I do not know what I'm talking about. That's our show for this week. Thanks once again for tuning in. In this episode, we talked about Season 9. I also talked about attending Creation Chicago 2009. Shout out to all my peeps who I hung out with who tuned into the podcast. And if you want links to everything we talked about today, to read more, head over to GateWorld.net and look up the episode 57 show notes. 
You can give us a call, like many of these folks have been doing, on the hotline at 616-712-1647, day or night. And you can always write us in the podcast feedback thread. Yeah, we had great feedback this week. There was a lot of interest in Season 9 and some awesome voicemails. Let's come back in seven days and do it again. Let's do that. Same Stargate time. Same website. From Gate World, this is Darren. This is David. We'll see you again.